you would turn in your Bible to Revelation chapter 3, please. We will begin with verse 7, which is the letter dictated by the Lord Jesus Christ to John on the island of Patmos in a cave. Uh, And he was to deliver this letter to the angel of the church as each you remember each letter was directed to the angel of the church which you remember is the minister we're told in the, in the book of Revelation that's the minister and he was to deliver it to the congregation and uh, this, these letters are to uh, the church of, of Jesus Christ not just to those particular churches at the time but since they're in the Bible they're for us as well beginning in verse 7 and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia Jesus speaking, write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth, and no man shutteth, and shutteth, and no man openeth. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee, because thou hast kept the word of my patience. I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out. And I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God. And I will write upon him my new name. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Philadelphia. Philadelphia in the United States is known as the city of brotherly love, and that was the comes from the Greek Philadelphos. Loving one's brother or sister. Uh, and why in the world would they call a town loving one's brother or sister? Uh, well, it was founded, depends on which historian you read, it was founded in either by either King Eumenes II uh, or King Attalos II, uh, Attalos uh, Philadelphos. Um, it's, uh, since it's called, it was either named after Attalos Philadelphos or founded by him. Uh, somewhere, historians are positive, 189 BC is given if it was King Eumenes, uh, Eumenes or uh, uh, if it was Attalos, it was a little later than that. Uh, but the reason was is that Eumenes and Attalos were brothers, and the one showed loyalty and love to the other. Um, not clear exactly what how that occurred, but uh, that's what uh, what it comes from. That uh, it was named after loyalty and love. Um, 
it, uh, in 133 BC, Philadelphia became Roman territory and was eventually part of the Byzantine Empire or the Eastern, remember when the Roman Empire, the Western Roman Empire fell uh, to, to, the, to the invasion of the uh, barbarian tribes. Uh, but the Eastern Roman Empire, which was set up, uh, which had been set up uh, when Const- uh, Constantine moved the capital from Rome of the Roman Empire from Rome to Constantinople, which is Istanbul today, uh, and uh, the Bishop of Rome uh, became, who was then the Pope, we would know as the Pope, uh, became consolidated his rule over the Christian church whereas uh, when, once, once the emperor of the Roman Empire was gone he had a lot, was a lot freer to, you know, to do that uh, so the emperor Constantine who was a Christian uh, probably not what we would <laughs> necessarily call a Christian but he, for his time and for, he was the best we had um, moved the capital to Constantinople and built a fabulous palace there and all uh, with some of which you can see today, uh, the uh, 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 Hagia Sophia, uh, famous uh, church and all. Um, and when Rome fell to the to the barbarians, Constantinople didn't fall. So part of the Roman Empire remained with Roman emperors and things, but it was called the Eastern Roman Empire or Byzantium. Same same thing. Uh, and it lasted uh, for many, many uh, uh, centuries, and uh, eventually became uh, it was it was called the Holy Roman Empire, uh, and that lasted up until what the nineteen early nineteen hundreds, uh, late eighteen hundreds, something I don't remember, but it was uh, it lasted a long time. Although historians will say the Holy Roman Empire was misnamed because it was neither holy nor Roman, nor was an empire. <laughs> sort of like Christian science. It's not Christian, and they don't believe in science. So, you know, who knows? Uh, we were in Philadelphia not long ago in Turkey. It still grows some of the best wine grapes in Turkey. And uh, it was famous for its wine. The uh, god of wine was worshipped there under both his Greek and Latin names Dionysius and Bacchus. And uh, it was called Little Athens. It was a very prosperous city. Um, and you may remember it suffered an earthquake in uh, the year 17 AD and was rebuilt by Tiberius, who renamed it Neo Caesarea, which means New Caesar or New City of the Caesars. Um, there is not much left of Philadelphia, ancient Philadelphia. Probably, I would say, since we visited the sites of the ruins of all seven churches, it has got the least amount of ruins of any of them. Um, second is probably Thyatira, but Thyatira is quite a bit more than, uh, uh, than Philadelphia. Both Philadelphia and Thyatira uh, and Sardis are built I think that's, that's all that, are, that, are, that have a city around them today so that what they did, you know, back when they built these uh, relatively modern cities, they didn't care that they were building over ruins so they built apartment buildings and schools and shops and things 
And so all these ruins are now covered up by places where people are living and doing business, so they can't go and excavate the ruins anymore. And uh, in the case of Philadelphia, they almost obliterated all the ruins. There's just a small little park that has some ruins of the uh, Church of St. John and a few other things, but very little to see. We spent very little time there. And, and the guide said very few people even go to Philadelphia, uh, only just uh, Christian pilgrims, a few Christian pilgrims. Well, nobody else is interested in it. Uh, but it's uh, fascinating to see. And uh, it was about 200 years old when the book of Revelation was given to uh, the Apostle John by the Lord Jesus. Now, 200 years was a very young city by ancient standards. Uh, Philadelphia uh, was a missionary city from the beginning to promote uh, the Greek language and manners, um, customs. And then it became a mission, missionary city of the gospel. The Lord used it. Uh, he took these particular cities that had particular advantages, like trade routes uh, or mail routes, or in this case, uh, they were uh, founded to promote the Greek language and, and manners in Lydia and Phrygia. And so he would change that to bring the gospel, uh, to use the trade routes, to use the postal routes, to use the the contacts and the center, uh, if, if, the, if the town had some, like, um, oh, Pergamum had a, a great medical center, and people would come from all over the known world for the medical uh, uh, treatment. Uh, and so uh, the Lord used that to strengthen the church there so that they, these people would hear the gospel and then be converted and, and spread the gospel around the known world as well. So the Lord, the Lord used, used the existing structure, which is what we are called to do, use the existing structure of the world to Christianize the world. That's our job. Uh, and to bring, uh, to bring all things to the glory of God. Uh, now, people worship the usual pagan gods, Zeus, uh, Hestia, which is a goddess of hearth and home, and savior gods. Uh, but there, uh, it wasn't the headquarters of Bacchus and Dionysius, but it certainly was a, a big center of worship. Um, in AD 17, a key to understanding Philadelphia, this earthquake in AD 17, which we heard a lot about when we were when we were there, it was a it was a region-wide earthquake. It was horrible. I mean, buildings, big stone buildings fell down. I mean, it was it was something. Uh, it happened about probably 50 years before this letter was written. A great earthquake destroyed much of Philadelphia, uh, and there were aftershocks for years afterward. So much so that most of the people moved out of the town of Philadelphia. They were afraid to live there, and they lived in the surrounding countryside because buildings could collapse. And the buildings, no doubt, had collapsed on people and killed them. Um, so that was that was the fear. A little background for you now. Let's talk about the fact that it was a center of winemaking. Some fine, wonderful, today still uh, Greek wines, or I'm sorry, Turkish wines. It worshipped, the people were devoted to pagan worship as they were in all these places, but particularly Bacchus, or Dionysius is the Greek name, Bacchus, the more familiar with is the, is the Roman or Latin. Uh, he was the god of the grape harvest, of winemaking, god of wine, a god of a good time. Uh, and Philadelphia is a major center of what they called his the Dionysian mystery religion, mysteries. Okay. 
uh, mystery worship rites. He was, uh, Bacchus Dionysus was regarded as a protector of those who do not belong to conventional society, protector of those who don't fit in with society. Uh, and so he symbolizes everything which is chaotic and unexpected, everything that escapes human reason uh, and which can only be attributed to the unforeseen action of the gods. You know, why did my child die? Because the gods wanted it that way. And we just don't understand. So you know, there's a parallel to that in, in, in that way. But that's fatalism. The difference between Christianity uh, and Islam or these pagan ideas, they're fatalistic about it. It wasn't to God's glory. It wasn't he didn't have any love in mind. The gods don't do things for because they love you or they're like the scripture says all things work together for good to for good to, to them who love God those who are called according to this purpose but they they're just gods are unpredictable they'll kill kids they'll cause earthquakes uh, because they just feel like doing it you know it's not that the good of anyone that's that's a difference in fatalism which is paganism or Islam and, and the Christianity the Bible we trust the Lord, even though things happen that we don't like, that they don't work out well. And from our perspective, we trust in the Lord that he is doing it for our good and for the good of his church. So, getting back to Bacchus and Dionysus. Uh, so he's the god of, of chaos and good, having a, just a wild time. And who cares about tomorrow? Let's party down tonight. His wild cult practices involved great quantities of wine, music, and ecstatic dancing, trance-like stuff. Okay. To free his uh, followers from self-consciousness, from from uh, just free up free up their inhibitions. Now, when I was working on this sermon, I. Uh, it, it just occurred to me uh, what a parallel this is between pagan worship, evolution, and and uh, Pentecostalism. In fact, if I, if I had the time, I'd write a book. And I'd, I was driving in this morning, and I'd call it uh, Evolution, Paganism, and Pentecostalism. Uh, because those who partook in the mysteries of this pagan religion believed they were possessed and empowered by the God himself. It was believed that through the intoxicants of the wine and other trans-inducing techniques like rhythm and dancing, wild dancing, to remove inhibitions and social constraints, a person would, number one, this isn't my theory, this is what, what historians or scholars say, a person would be, number one, freed to return to a natural animalistic state. Then, number two, the intoxicating and disinhibiting, if that's a word, uh, effects 
of the wine and the rhythms and the, uh, you know, the real beats and the wild dancing were regarded as evidence that the person was possessed by the god's spirit. Okay, So the goal was to be so possessed by the god that one evolved into a higher form, higher consciousness, and became indistinguishable from the god. So here we have evolution, right? We came from animals. That's the first part of it. We act like animals. And then we get so drunk that we're possessed, we think, by the God's spirit. And we become one with the God. So we evolved to a higher consciousness. What's that have to do with Pentecostalism? Well, Jim Evans this morning in conversation, I was telling him about this. And he said, you know, that's just like the church I came out of, Pentecostalism. The worship service, he said, it's all music designed to trigger different emotions, sadness, happiness. He said, there's, there's, he says, there's wild, what we would call wild dancing. He said, there's people rolling on the floor, uh, you know, in spasms. And he, uh, he said it, it sounds just like that pagan worship. The God worship had these characteristic movements, and I'm talking about such as backward head flicking, which is found in all trance-inducing cults. You can see it today in voodoo, in voodoo cults, uh, and its counterparts. Uh, voodoo rites, by the way, are called raves. You've heard of raves? Well, they're, they're, that's where they get the word rave from voodoo, voodooism. Uh, certain rhythms are associated with a trance-inducing uh, 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 state. A quote from a book called Delphi by author named Peter Holy. Holy, I'm sorry, it's Holy, but H-O-L-Y-E. Quote, following the torches as they dipped and swayed in the darkness. This is the uh, Bacchus Dionysius uh, 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 cult worship. Following the torches as they dipped and swayed in the darkness, they climbed mountain paths with heads thrown back and eyes glazed, dancing to the beat of the drum which stirred their blood uh, or staggered drunkenly with what was known as the Dionysius Gate. Gate meaning the way they walked, drunkenly. In this state of ecstasy, they abandoned themselves, dancing wildly and shouting what we would say Bacchus or Uyoi, the God's name, and at that moment of intense rapture became identified with the God himself. They became filled with his spirit and acquired, they thought, divine powers. And it could only make me think of what the serpent said to Eve in Genesis 3. In the day you eat thereof, your eyes shall be open and you shall be as gods. Just like the goal here of these cult worshipers, to be as God. The spirit would possess me. I will be as God. I don't need a God to tell me right from wrong. I can come up with my own right from wrong. I don't need a Bible because I can determine what's right and wrong because I'm like God. I wonder, too, how we call alcoholic beverages spirits. I don't know. Makes sense, doesn't it? Makes sense. 
Okay. And to the end, that's all preface. <laughs> the Lord Jesus begins and says, To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, These things says he, saith he who is holy, he that is true, he that has the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth and shutteth and no man openeth. So Jesus Christ identifies him first of all as he who is holy. You know, by the way, the Philadelphia church uh, is the only one of two churches that the Lord did not condemn uh, certain things about it. He says, you're you're good people. You've been faithful. He identifies himself as holy. If you look at the, it's interesting to look at these different letters and see how the Lord identifies himself. He has different ways of identifying himself depending on what church he's talking to. Holy, of course, means set apart. He hates sin. He loves righteousness. He's calling himself God. Only God is holy. The Holy One is a common Old Testament title for God. You find that not, uh, many times in Isaiah, for example. He says, He who is true. John fourteen six. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus said, I am the truth. No man cometh unto the Father except by me. There is no truth apart from Christ. Because he created the world. He created truth. He created the laws of physics. He created the laws of mathematics. He created the laws of logic. You can't take Christ out of that. You can't take the creator out of the and say, well, these just exist on their own independently, like the world thinks. No, there's no truth apart from him. Man's organized reason, or philosophy, is organized reason. Okay. It's not truth apart from Christ. Every non-Christian philosopher's carefully worked out system, and I majored in philosophy, disagrees with every other philosopher's carefully worked out system. Uh, In psychology, sociology, every reason-based discipline suffers the same end without Christ. Even theoretical physics suffers the same end. Even quantum mechanics suffers the same end. A huge misunderstanding of our time is that science discovers truth. No, it does not discover truth. It cannot discover truth. It never will discover truth. Science is educated guesses, sometimes brilliant guesses, but they're guesses nonetheless. Even Albert Einstein admitted that. Uh, He told a colleague... And this is uh, quoted in uh, a book called Einstein, The Life and Times by Ronald W. Clark, Avon Books, 1971, page 504. Even Albert Einstein told a colleague, colleague, Dr. Chaim Chernowitz, that, quote, we know nothing about the universe at all. All our knowledge is but the knowledge of school children. He said, the, unquote, he said, the most science can ever hope for is, quote, possibly we shall know a little more than we do now, but the real nature of things, that we shall never know. Never. Albert Einstein. In fact, according to Karl Popper, who was a very famous uh, uh, philosopher, 
Einstein declared that his own theories, or even all theories of science, were false in that they, in the sense that they stated any truth as final. That was also found in that book. Now that may surprise many, but you know what? The people at least surprises are scientists. They know the truest statement any scientist can make is that he will never come to final truth. If you say, well, they may not be true in that sense, but they're highly probable. Scientific theories are highly probable. Popper said, and very likely Einstein and many other scientists uh, would agree with the statement of Gordon uh, Clark, for example, Dr. Gordon Clark, quote, all scientific theories, including the best, have the same probability, namely zero. How probable is it, for example, you may know this, if you flip a coin and it comes up six heads in a row, how probable is it that it's going to come up ahead the next time, come up as a head the next time? Is it more probable because it's flipped six times the head? No. The probability is zero. It's zero. If it flipped a hundred times and it comes up heads, oh, well, the next one is more likely to come up heads than tails? No. The probability is zero. And all scientific theories have the same probability, namely zero. Because the sun comes up every morning, is it probable it will come up tomorrow morning? What? Well, yeah, sure, it's probable, isn't it? No, it's not. What's it? Tell me why there's a guarantee that the sun will come up tomorrow morning. Genesis. Because the Lord Jesus Christ. We trust the Lord Jesus Christ, and the, we trust the Lord, absolutely. But uh, the Lord has promised uh, we won't have another worldwide flood, for example. Uh, but scientists can't tell you with absolute certainty or even say it's, it's with reasonable probability that the sun is going to come up tomorrow morning. Uh, because uh, uh, he doesn't doesn't know the scriptures. Um, okay, I mean, the Lord speaking through the Apostle Paul sums up science as it is and always will be in Second Timothy three seven quote ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Ever learning but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Einstein would be the first to agree. Now is it saying that well we just throw out science it's worth totally worthless? No. The purpose of science is to take God's creation and to put it together to benefit our lives. Put certain chemicals together that benefits our lives. Put certain foods, produce better animals, produce uh, better plants, produce, uh, take different things together and make an automobile out of parts. Uh, you know the science of the internal combustion engine, the science of sending a rocket to the moon, the science of uh, well, any science you can think of. Uh, those are all useful. Are they discovering truth? No. It's taking taking God's creation and using the reason that God has given us to create useful things that make our lives better. That's the purpose. Let's move on as much as we can here in the time we have. Christ calls himself the Holy One. He calls himself he who is true. 
And he who has the key of David, who opens and no man shutteth, and uh, I should read it exactly instead of trying to get it from memory. Uh, he, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. He has the key to David. The reference here is to Isaiah 22, 22. The Lord says, in talking about Christ, the key, of course, long before he's born, uh, incarnate, as a, as, a, as a man, the key of the house of David I will lay upon his shoulder. Okay, Christ has the key to the house of David. What's the house of David? The church. Christ has a key to the church, to the God's kingdom. It's, it's more than the church. I don't, I, don't, I don't mean to say that the, uh, God's kingdom is limited to only that, but that's a whole different subject. Anyway, Christ has a key to the church. He has a key to, to the admission of God's kingdom. Christ is the only one who can grant access to God. We know this from, for example, he said to himself in John six forty four, no man can come to me except the Father draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Uh, he also said in Matthew 28, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. All power is given to Jesus Christ in heaven and in earth. That means he has power over every human being. Ever think about that? He has power over you. For, you know, power over everything. All power is given to me. Not all power except some things. All power is given to me in heaven and in earth. Colossians 1.18, he is the head of the body of the church who is the beginning. Let's look at that. If you would turn to Colossians chapter 1, please. This is really critical, and you can learn so much by studying this passage. Colossians 1, beginning in verse 18. Uh, well, it's, 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 it's hard to separate here. Let's go to 16. For by him... Okay, then you just have to say, who, by whom? So we have to go back and see, what are we talking about? And it goes way, way back to Christ Jesus. Okay. For by him were all things created. By Christ, all things were created. He created them. Christ was the agent of creation here. In verse 16 in Colossians 1. For by him were all things created. Exactly what Christ said in Matthew 28. All power is given unto me in heaven and on earth. By him were all things created that are in heaven and are on earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. In other words, all the rulers of the earth, whatever powers we're talking about, we're talking about electrical energy or the atomic energy, whatever it is, all things were created by him, but it doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop there. It says all things were created by him and for him. He created everything, but the purpose of creation is for Jesus Christ, for his glory. And it says, verse 17, he is before all things. So he existed before all things existed. Existed through eternity. And by him, all things consist doesn't say there he created everything. It says he keeps it together. 
scientists don't really know why atoms stay together. And I, I've read, you know, I'm no expert in um, quantum mechanics, but, uh, you know, I have read that by all rights, they should be flying, you know, atoms should be flying apart. I mean, there are theories and electrical and gravity and all that, but attractions and all. But it says here, by him all things consist. So it's the energy of Christ, his will, that keeps atoms together. Our little brains can't possibly comprehend that. But it's because of him that we, our bodies don't fly apart. The world, the universe doesn't just fly apart and go out of existence or whatever. And he is the head of the body, the church, verse 18, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, in all things he might have the preeminence. So the Holy Spirit here is trans... uh, not translating, but uh, making a transition here to show that from the creation of all things, he is then... he was the beginning... From the beginning, before the beginning, but he's also the beginning as the firstborn from the dead. He was raised from the dead, the first one to be raised from the dead to show us what's going to happen to us. We will be also raised from the dead, but he's the firstborn, the first one. Uh, and of course, then it, it goes on with that. Now, remember what, the, what, the, uh, what was going on in Philadelphia, and we see this from the letter. The Jews in Philadelphia, there were Jews who, well, if, if, if you remember back uh, in verse uh, 9, Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. I will make them come worship before your feet. The Jews in Philadelphia claimed they were the true people of God, who held the key to the kingdom of God. The Jews always claimed that they were the they were the, the, the repository of God's wisdom. They had the scriptures; and they were right about that. They had the keys to the kingdom. Of course, once Christ came and opened up uh, salvation to to all. Of course, there are Gentiles that are saved in the Old Testament, but generally speaking. Uh, there was not a general offer of the gospel in the Old Testament uh, offer of salvation and Christ came but these Jews were still in the old mindset saying we're the Jews we, you know, we're the saved, we're God's chosen people and you, you Gentiles the rest of you guys aren't you know? too bad for you Jesus makes it clear it's he who has the key to the house of David, the true Israel the church since he is both the son of David and David's Lord. When the, when the Pharisees said, well, how can you, you know, talk about things like that? He says he directs them back to the Old Testament and says, well, how can David call, call him his Lord uh, he is, since he's both his son? So they were confused. He is both the son of David and his Lord. The key of David had been forfeited by Israel because they rejected the Messiah. So God took the key of David, the key to the admission to the church, admission to uh, heaven, away from them. Uh, Christ has it. Of course, he always had it, but uh, he allowed them to uh, think they had it anyway. So the local Jewish community of Philadelphia may claim that the kingdom belongs to them, 
But what does Christ say about that in verse 9? They're liars. They're lying. And he opens the door. He opens a door of people's hearts. You know, people won't, won't listen to the gospel, no matter how smart they are or how well read even in the Bible they are, until he opens their heart, the door to their hearts. Right? So he opens a door to the hearts of his elect people. See, nobody can resist him when he breaks down or opens the door to your heart. If you're one of his, you know what I'm talking about. He he opens then the door of admission into the visible church. You know, the church that we can see with our eyes on street corners and things if they're true churches of, of Christ. He opens the door of admission into the visible church through the terms of communion. And he opens the door of the heaven of heaven to his elect people. But he also shuts the door. He says, I open the doors, I open them, and I shut them. Well, how's it, what does he shut? Well, he shuts the door to the hearts of the reprobates. Those who are not to be saved can read the Bible all day long and listen to sermons and everything else, but if, if he shuts the door of their heart, they, it's going to mean nothing to them. Uh, he leaves them shut up in the hardness of their hearts. And he shuts the door of the church against his enemies. A visible church should not be admitting those who are not uh, professing Christ and and living uh, as best they can uh, the life that they should live. So the door should be shut to them. And again, he shuts the door of heaven against them. He can sh- he can open, and none can shut. Okay. What is that? again? He that openeth himself, and no man shuts, and shuts, and no man opens. He can open, and no man can shut it. He can shut it, and no man can open. He can open, and none can shut. That's grace. That's grace. His his will of opening the door to to heaven, to, to the mission of the church, opening the door of your heart so you believe and receive faith. That's grace. He can shut, and none can open. That's sovereignty. Because he is sovereign, and he he can shut up the sinner's hearts, uh, and none and no man can open it. No man can convince somebody to be saved if they're not going to be saved. So what he does is independent of any man's will or desire, can't be changed by any man. Isaiah forty six ten and eleven. My counsel shall stand. And I will do all my pleasure. Yea, I have spoken. I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed. I will also do it. What comfort is this to a child of God? Christ has the keys of the universe since he controls every little motion of every atomic particle. We just read that in Colossians. In Isaiah 46, 9 and 10, it says that God controls every event, large or small, that ever happens and has preordained the outcome. 
Isaiah 46, I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done. So he's got all of history all planned out in advance. Or whatever happens, he had, he had that planned out. Whether it's an election in the United States or whether it's a war somewhere or an earthquake somewhere or one of the most remarkable things Dr. Gordon Clark ever wrote, I think, uh, is that he was quoting a writer who said that, well, even Calvinists don't really believe in God's sovereignty. For example, if a man kills his entire family and then takes his own life, even the most staunch Calvinist would say, well, God didn't preordain that. And Dr. Clark writes, and he said, that is exactly what I say. That is exactly what I say. Now, we say, well, how, how can that be? That's so horrible. That's so unfair. There's a test of faith right there. Can, can God do things that we can't understand, that we even are horrified by and, and, and just, just can't imagine God doing? If you say, no, that can't be God, then you don't believe in the God of the Bible. You don't believe in Isaiah 46. I am God, there's none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient thing, times, things that are not yet done. Also says in Isaiah, what? I create evil. I create evil. Does that make God evil? No. He can't be evil. Because if he were, if he were, if he were to say God is evil, then we're holding God to a standard a higher standard than God, which is not possible, then that standard would be God, right? Who created that standard? Some other God? No. Uh, That's a test of faith. And he holds the keys of life and death. What comfort is the truth that has this power to open and shut in his own pleasure? All things are in his power. I'll conclude with Isaiah 14.24. Jehovah of hosts has sworn, saying, Surely as I have thought, so it shall come to pass, and as I have purposed, so it shall stand. And we can take great, great, great comfort and joy in that. Remember what we read in our New Testament reading this morning? John chapter 14, Jesus left his followers with this, as I will leave with you. If you look at John 14, beginning in verse 1, Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. Verse 21, or excuse me, verse 16. And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but ye know him, 
for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world seeth me no more. But ye see me, because I live, ye shall live also. At that day ye shall know that I am in my Father, and ye in me, and I in you. He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, it is he that love me. And he that loves me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. And verse 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Amen. Father, we indeed come to thee in prayer asking uh, for this assurance, Father, of faith, the full assurance that, Lord, that Lord Jesus has given us these promises. We know that thou art in control of everything that comes to pass. Father, we believe, help thou our unbelief. Let us cling to these promises, the Lord Jesus Christ, of giving us perfect peace that let not our hearts be troubled Father not as the world gives peace does Jesus give us peace he says Father make it true in our lives let not our hearts be troubled neither let it be afraid